0: with this great stream of Jesus followers who say, no, Jesus speaks about this regularly, that there is a life to come, there is a judgment, and there's a way to be right with God, that there's an eternity before every heart. You see, what's at stake today, and what we'll talk about today, is whether the ultimate reality is oblivion, or whether the ultimate reality ought to be life with a good God who made us. See, a lot of people, I do think, have this look around, say, well, all this, you know, wherever you are, all of us are just going to one day, it's going to be like before we were born, just off into oblivion, kind of wishful thinking, we'll all just disappear. But even as that comes out of the mouth or the thought life, you say there's another side of us that says, well, I don't like that idea. That the grand scheme, all humans of all times and all places seem to think that there's something after the grave. And how can we know How can we be informed on these things? And it's because of Jesus that we see the ultimate reality is not oblivion, but the invitation is to a life with the living God with whom all of our tears will be washed away, where things will be set right, and that we'll be together with other people who acknowledge Jesus as King. Now how we get there today, it's an interesting passage that we have, and we'll take a couple of angles into it when we answer our primary question, what's heaven like? But first, I want us to see something about the setup. That Jesus, he's on his way. It's a comforting thought in early February that we're marching towards Easter. Uh, This is the last week of Jesus's life. And as he's in full command, Uh, That's one of the things we're to see. Jesus is the victim of no one. He's in complete command, and a lot of people are trying to get him to stumble, and they're coming at him with questions. So chapter 20 and verse 2, tell us by what authority you do these things. Then later in chapter 2, remember, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And time and again, as Jesus' opponents are coming at him, trying to embarrass him, the exact opposite happens, that Jesus in one line exposes them for who they are, that is duplicitous and ignorant cultural elites. And so Jesus now faces a third group. Look at verse 27, what uh, Julie just read. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question. So this is yet another group, and the Sadducees' question, you're looking at this setup, and you're thinking, this is bizarre, uh, that there's one lady, and she marries all these brothers and they keep dying off, you say, what kind of woman is this, right? Um, you imagine if you're like the fifth son, you know, he's like, I, I'm seeing a pattern here. Um, this isn't going to go well for me. Um, <laughs> is this a realistic situation? Um, well, where it's coming from is from an ancient Near Eastern custom. So if you're from the ancient Near East, uh, this question begins to take some shape. There was something called a leverate vow. And there's a leverate marriage in God's law. And the way that it worked is that if a a brother, you had a brother and that brother died and there was a sonless widow, uh, that your former sister-in-law had no offspring, no one to keep that family line going, your brother's family law, and she's a vulnerable widow in that culture, that it was your duty as the brother to marry her. This is a leverate marriage. So if you come to a chapter like Genesis 38, you're reading your Bible, you get to Genesis 38, you're saying, this is really weird. Say, it's not that weird because the Leverite vow was designed to carry on your brother's line and also protect this young widow. Same idea with what we later call a kinsman-redeemer law. So this hypothetical, the Sadducees set this up to expose Jesus so they think, on the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection, so what they're gonna do is they, they think, premeditated question, how can we show the resurrection is a sham? And they say, let's suppose in the Leverite vow, there's one lady, she marries all these brothers, so she's in fact been married seven times, Who's, whose husband will she be in the resurrection? And the, the idea then, they thought, said now we've really got him. Uh, this, is what, this is how silly the idea of the resurrection really is. That's the setup. Now, in this interaction, the first thing I think we should see is that Jesus shows us how to read our Bibles properly. Read our Bibles properly. So why did the Sadducees deny the resurrection? Right there in verse 27. I suppose this, like anything, is never singular in its intention or motivation. Really, rarely do we have singular motivations and intentions. But I think on the one hand, uh, like all non-converted people, that they mock this idea. That if you talk to a non-Christian and they say, well, the bedrock of our faith is that Jesus was raised from the dead and that all those who are in Christ will be raised to be with him. And in fact, all those who reject Jesus, they too will be raised and go to hell. That's at the foundation of our faith, that there is a life to come, that we shall all be raised. And unconverted people, let's face it, mock this idea. Maybe they'd say, well, I think, you know, there's a spiritual realm out there. Uh, We're going to be somewhere and not nowhere. Again, oblivion's not the ultimate reality. But this idea that we're all going to be raised bodily to one eternity or another is just so far-fetched that it just mocked. Maybe that's the Sadducees. And in that sense, I fear that they could be closely approximated to the kind of, uh, you know, current religious rationalist. Uh, These kinds of folks are all around us. you know. They say, well, they're in kind of a mainline tradition. They say, well, of course I believe in God. I'm an American, aren't I? I share the same values as you. But then you press on it and say, well, they really have no concept of a personal relationship with Jesus or what it means to follow him. And it's kind of a cold, rationalistic, materialistic way of approaching religion. Was that the Sadducees? I also think that there's another side of this, that there's another side of this that's far darker, if you will, and far more um, helpful to us in the crookedness of our own hearts. Let's see if we can suggest a few things. On this idea of the Sadducees denying the resurrection, so that's quite a claim, there's extra-biblical evidence that says this. So, for example, there's a first-century Jewish historian called Josephus, who writes about the Sadducees. He said the Sadducees deny the resurrection, so for those of us who think the Bible's all made up, it's not anchored anywhere, say we do not have that excuse, that in this instance there's excellent overlap between what the Bible says and what non-Christian historians say. Josephus says the Sadducees deny the spiritual realm, they deny the resurrection, and then interestingly this, the Sadducees deny any judgment. Now, also about this group of folks is that they're small in number. They're in the position they are because of a, a, a pedigree, because of their, their biological uh, line. They're wealthy aristocrats. Now, what I'm suggesting is something like this. By virtue of being a small, wealthy, priestly class who tends to be inward-looking and not really concerned about the welfare of other people, doesn't it fit rightly that they might tend to dampen this idea of a future judgment? Keep going. Live high on the hog. Look at us. Say, we come from the right kind of line. Forget about all them. And the darker motivation that I want to tease out here, what I'm suggesting is that I think it's very possible that the Sadducees then read their Bibles to justify their own positions. That if you say, I don't like this idea that I'll be judged on account of how I treat people and how I think of God, it's not really in the Bible anyway, becomes a very relevant problem, doesn't it? that you have all kinds of folks that we do our own thing. We say, oh, does the Bible really say? I think that's justified, and we're doing great disservice to the Bible. And to back up this case, that if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells this story, the same story of the Sadducees coming to him with this question, and Matthew's gospel adds one other line from Jesus. He says, you all are an error because you don't know scripture and you don't know the power of God. They don't know their Bibles, they don't understand what really all this is about. It's a cold formalism, and what they're doing is they say, well, I don't really think the Bible talks about judgment and resurrection. Why? Because they didn't want to believe in a judgment and resurrection because their lives were quite comfortable. And say, this is the uncomfortable reality for us. I'm quite good here in Avon. I live well. Our house prices are going up. It's a safe community. I have a fulfilled life you know what, whether or not I'm going to be judged, not really a priority for me. Could it be something like that? Now, how Jesus responds, again, a great masterful stroke. These Sadducees only focused, they had a Bible within their Bibles, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the ones that Moses wrote. They were hyper-focused on those five books, and they're saying, if you look in those Books, there's slim evidence. Again, they're reading through their own lens. There's slim evidence for the resurrection. What's Jesus going to respond? Take a look at verse 37. He's talking, Jesus, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead. But of the living, for all live to him. Now, why is this a masterful stroke? He takes them right back to the Bibles that they're claiming to know. And he says this whole notion of the dead being raised is right there in plain sight. And he takes them to a famous scene. Like, I like the way it comes across in, in English, you know, the bit about the bush. See, the bit about the bush is pretty important. It's the burning bush. It's where God reveals himself to Moses. You remember the scene, right? Moses says, well, how are they going to believe me? How am I going to lead them out? They're not going to trust me. God says, well, I am. That God gives his personal name. His personal name is the ever-existent one. I am. And in that instance, at the burning bush, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived long before Moses. They had died their earthly deaths. And God in that occasion says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Clearly on God's own lips, the implication that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are with the living God. god Not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. It'd be a bit like this. Um, I've got to witness this a number of times. I have a, a friend who... Uh, in, in the uh, kind of our overlapping academic circle, and sometimes we do this electronically, sometimes in person, but generally we're in a meeting, we go around the room and we introduce ourselves, say a bit about what we do and our families, and every time this one individual, he always says something like this. He says, my name is, and I'm married to, and we have two children, and my son is with the Lord. Every time. We have, present tense, Two children, my son is with the Lord. He said it's a fantastically Christian claim, the present tense. You'd expect it, well, I have one daughter, and I had one son. No, I have two children, and one is with the Lord. That's the way a Christian talks. God's saying, I'm not the God of the dead, but actually Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in this life to come. And so what Jesus marvelously does is he beats them at their own game. He shows them what their Bibles really say and that the resurrection of the dead has been there all along, that there is the life to come. And for us, I think another objection that comes is that is the resurrection uh, just something that Jesus taught? Is there any ancestry to it? And here again, he's showing us that right from the beginning of our Bibles is this notion that God's people will be with God forever. Now, along these lines of knowing the Bible well, let's skip down to verse 41, that Jesus finally, after playing a bit of defense very well and exposing them, he decides to play a bit of offense. Notice verse 41, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ, that is the Messiah, is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That bit of poetry there, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. It was written by David. Now why this is a good question is because it's what we would call a double Lord passage, a double Lord passage. You see, there's two Lords. The Lord said to my Lord. And what Jesus is asking these experts, he says, it points him to the Psalms, says basically, what does this mean? The first Lord, everyone agrees on. This is God the Father. This is is Yahweh. The second Lord's the question. How does David call his son, everyone was agreed that the Messiah would come from David's line, right through the Hebrew Bible that the Messiah would be of David's lineage. How is it that David could call his son Lord. It'd be an unthinkable thing in a patriarchal society, and quite frankly, an unthinkable thing today, for a father to call his son Lord. Why does David, who wrote the Psalm, say that his son is also Lord? So the Sadducees have a choice to make. Either they can deny the Messiah is to be from the line of David, which would be a very bad mistake, because again, that's obvious there, or they might, what Jesus is suggesting, what we know to be true, is that the Lord is actually God's son as well. That David can call his earthly son Lord because that same figure is God's son, the Messiah. And once again, what's he showing us? Read our Bibles closely. Allow the Bible to really sink in and do the work. Friends, this week I sent out on Friday in the Word of the Week um, a little a title that How to Listen to a Sermon. See, what's happening here, what we've got to be absolutely committed to, is all of us with open Bibles seeing together what the Bible says. Not just saying, well, the pastor gave me a few takeaway applications today, so I'm going to be more popular in the workplace. say that would be a disaster of, of what we're trying to do here. We're opening God's word and saying, He gave this to us, he preserved this for our edification. What's it say? Oh, that is what it says. What questions can I be asking as I have my Bible open? Or a better question, yet: how, what's my role to play in having everyone in this assembly obey it? Because Jesus shows us how to be a sensitive reader of the Bible. He forbid, may he forbid us reading in our own justifications. This is what I want to do in my life. This is how I want to redefine this. This is what I want a man or a woman to be. And, and the Bible doesn't speak to that. It's exactly what the Sadducees were doing. Rather to say, God, I'm under your word. That is what it says. How do we obey it no matter the cost? So Jesus, the right interpreter of the Bible, resurrection right there in front of the Sadducees' noses, they deny it because they don't want to face this reality, they don't want to think about judgment, and the devil Lord passage, the implications are going to be very obvious to them that Jesus is this second Lord, David's son and Lord and God. All right, now what about the particulars then? (laughs) it just gets a bit more interesting here with what Jesus responds to this scenario. So once again, look at the scenario that the Sadducees set up, that there are seven brothers and one lady that they are all going to be dutiful in obeying the levirate vow. And so she ends up being married seven times. Uh, who will this woman be married to in the age to come? First thing to notice, in Jesus' response, verse 34, I'll read it again. And Jesus said to them, "...the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage." For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Please note, firstly, that Jesus distinguishes between this age, 34, and that age, 35. You say, well, what's this age? It's this. Here we are together in our limited bodies, with our frailties, with our responsibilities, with all the You know, desires of the flesh and all the good things of this life, yes, but this is this age. And many of us, not all of us, but many of us get married here. That's this age. But then Jesus says there's another age. It's that age. It's the age to come, and in that age, people will not be married. It's going to be different. And I think for us to see between our life now in the temporal city of man, we might say, and the age to come, there's going to be a lot of continuity. I take great comfort in the continuity that the Bible talks about between this age and the age to come. For example, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 4, that we're gonna, there's going to be a great reunion for all those who are in Jesus. I'm sure everyone in this room has a parent or a, a former spouse or a, you know, your spouse who passed away or your or a child, somebody who died in Jesus. And you look forward to the day to say, I'm going to see them again. For all those who put their faith in Christ, there's absolutely going to be a reunion. You say, you notice the resurrected Jesus who has the scars in his hands. They recognize him, but he's a little bit different. There's going to be a lot of continuity between this age and that age. But there are also going to be differences. And the differences tend to scare us a bit more, but I think the differences really open up the great glories of of that age and and one of them is going to be this, the role of singleness. That there's no marriage in heaven, what does this mean for singleness now? And I suppose the way into this conversation is that I would imagine that being a single person in our congregation might be a very difficult place to be. That in a lot of ways that we have way more married couples than single people. And the way that our culture is tends to talk about single people in a certain way, like, well, you know, maybe there's, there's something wrong, wrong with you, or, you know, when you really arrive, you're going to, you know, find the one, that all these slogans, and the way it can feel is that single people are kind of second-class citizens. And hopefully one day you'll, you'll arrive at this great thing we call marriage, and it's almost Jesus is, is turning, that, turning that on its head that actually it's not singleness that's the temporary state on way on way to marrying another person. Actually, marriage is the temporary state to being united to Jesus and being single for eternity. So I think our church does well to value singleness, to value the contributions that single people can make, as Paul says, channeling those energies into gospel ministry, and to uh, serving the Lord, and to pray for contentment and grace in that state, which one day we'll all be in. But another implication of this, and this one is uh, strange, uh, difficult to wrap our minds around. What this passage also means is that there's no sex in heaven. Now for some of us, you think, well, how could it's such a dominant force in America that we are a sex-obsessed culture. That what, what we have done to young children in, in every sphere of entertainment and songs, and you name it, that we are a highly sexualized culture. And you have people say, you're, you're, not, you're actually subhuman if you're not having sex. There, there's something terribly the wrong, wrong with you if, if you're celibate. And Jesus here says, that's not it. That Jesus would help us focus on being whole in him, and seeing sex as something that is a part of this age and not that age. And for all of us, again, if you're single, or I think this can happen if you're married too, to be very careful not to idolize marriage. To say, well, you know, if if I'm married and I'm having sex and I'm in that kind of stable relationship, all my problems will go away. I hope we all would say, as good as a gift marriage is, that it is not the solution to our problems. Because what happens, you have somebody who's single, they idolize marriage, they're just waiting, waiting, that's gonna solve all my problems. They come and say, what does that do to the potential spouse? It puts such a tremendous weight, they're enslaved, Say, so how could I meet all, these, these, all this person's needs? It's just not gonna happen. So idolizing marriage uh, would, would not be the way to go, but to be whole in Christ. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was at a conference and a, a female English professor got up to speak and she opened her talk uh, saying this, she said, when I was younger, all my fantasies were about being married and having children. And now that I have four small children, all my fantasies are about being single. <laughs> so a, a way of saying that this life um, has all kinds of you know, dangers, toils, and snares, but for a church to value singleness, to see actually singleness is, is the eternal thing, marriage is the temporary thing. You don't actually arrive at marriage. You actually arrive at, at singleness, being full in Christ. You know, there are no knockdown arguments. I learned this long ago, but I think this is pretty close to a knockdown argument. See what you think. Who is the, the most complete and full human person who ever walked this earth? Who is the person that did it exactly right, who, who had an optimal well-being, who, who flirt to use the old philosophical term, who flourished maximally? It was Jesus. In our catechism he came like us, became like us in every way. Jesus was anatomically male, but he lived his life with in such a way of restraint and balance and obedience that he was completely fulfilled. So think about that, the most fully human person who ever lived was died a virgin. How's that in a sex obsessed culture? What do you think? What's Jesus correcting? And on this point, I don't, uh, you know, I I like to tell about people in our midst who are doing wonderful ministry. Say you're single and you're thinking about the role of of all these, uh, you know, marriage and and what's to come, I can highly recommend Mark Ballinger's book. Mark's over here. Mark's a member of our congregation. Uh, This uh, came out 2023, Christ-centered dating, pursuing a relationship that glorifies God. So I'd love for you to, Mark's put many energies into this uh, area in his ministry. Um, We had a lot of copies at the first service. They went, so I've learned for the next time. But Mark's got a a wonderful website, applyinggodsword.com. You can talk to Mark, but it's a way of saying, when I want to date, what's the right perspective? What's unhealthy? What's it about? Am I in the right mindset? So please talk to Mark and grab that if you're interested in more. The point is here, we embrace singleness. We see it for what it is. So point one, Jesus tells us how to accurately read our Bibles to pay attention to what God actually says and as best we can never to justify the things that we want to do by reading them back into the Bible. Secondly, that singleness is not an embarrassing mark. It's not a scourge, but rather something that is to be embraced for the sake of the gospel and that the church should be of all people to say, you know, uh, you know marriage and sex is not the, the, the ultimate uh, thing to do, but rather that we'll be fulfilled ultimately in Christ. That's the truth of the matter, that the way that we're fulfilled now in sexual activity will actually be fulfilled in our union with Christ and the other believers. Now, lastly, that this passage does have implications for marriage. Why is there no marriage in heaven? For some of us, this is very sad. That You've spent after the first service, met a couple, married going to be 60 years. Another couple just had 64 years. And it's sad to say, when one of us dies, our marriage will be fulfilled, because the vow is, what till death do you part? It's not that you won't see your spouse in heaven. We've already talked about that. But this idea, you won't be married in heaven, can be sad. What does it tell us about the purpose of marriage? This is very different for a Christian. A non-Christian is likely to say, I'm getting married because this person makes me happy. I'm a better person because of what they do for me. Now, we some people think that's really nice, but if you really unpack it, it's quite selfish. Say, well, I married Mallory because she does, you know, she brings out the best in me. Say, it's ultimately selfish. What God's word would say from Ephesians 5 is actually this: rather than seeing marriage as this union that's for your own happiness, actually, marriage is for gospel ministry. That God would bring you a Christian companion. And how you relate to one another in that very specific institution would invite other people to know and follow the true God. Just yesterday, Mallory and I were doing some pre-marriage counseling. They, they go for Mallory's expertise. I'm the negative example. Uh, but, and and uh, she, she, does not, she comes from a non, maybe a nominal Christian home. They're not what we call born-again Christians. He's from a strong Christian home. And just as I'm thinking about this passage, you hear her just yesterday say words very close to this. When I came into his, his parents' home, it was so much different than my home. Dad hugged mom. Dad talked nice to mom. Dad said a prayer before the meal. And it was very obvious there was a domain of light there. And I thought, perfect, exactly what this is about. Marriage here between two Christians is a signpost to the reality of what Christ did for us. Why does that couple forgive one another? Why is there grace there? Why does their home feel so nice when they're hospitable? What's going on there? To which the couple says, Well, we know Jesus, and He's shown us much grace and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, if you are in a Christian marriage, keep going. Your example's not lost. The way you treat one another, the way you put this on display. Has there ever been a time in our country when we've more needed your example? People are watching. Keep going. Stay faithful. Do ministry together for as long as you have. Perhaps you're in a bad marriage. Or perhaps you're married to a non-believer and you say, well, what, what about me? I would say, well, as you live out your call under Christ, remembering that we're all fulfilled by him and not by anything earthly, that as you do that, you will be more inclined to win your spouse to Christ, that is, the Spirit of God would use your testimony to bring your spouse to Christ, that happens too, but also that as you live that out, even in a hard marriage, that it's not lost on your brothers and sisters who find it a great display of perseverance and gospel ministry. So again, we'll bring this full circle. You're not a Christian today. We've brought up a lot, singleness, marriage, the life to come, The prospect of being with Jesus in eternity and him fulfilling us even in a way that all of the earthly delights that we can have do not fulfill us will be fulfilled in him and somebody comes up to you this week and says what do you think happens when you die are you with Steve Jobs 50-50 I hope so I don't know I would be a terrible pastor if I let anyone leave this room being confused on this matter and I would plead with you If you have not put your life into the hands of Jesus, if you've not seen what he's done on the cross for you, that today is the opportunity to say, I don't need to be confused about the afterlife. I don't need to be confused about the purpose of my marriage or my relationships. I I hand over my life to Jesus. I see he's died for me and that he's the God of the living, that I can do his ministry here and now and be with him in eternity. Today, you put your faith in Jesus and don't be confused. And for Christians, close with this one close to home. This past Tuesday, I got the text that I had anticipated for some weeks that our dear sister Susan Johnson had her home going. She went to be with Jesus. And as I sat in my office, I was very sad. Susan was 64. She taught my sons at the school. She's been a dear member of this congregation. She's on the wall out there when they did the groundbreaking here. I'm so glad I wasn't in my office saying, I don't know, 50-50. I'm a bit confused. I wasn't thinking that at all. I was thinking, Susan's with her Lord, the God of the living. That her husband, who's going to be, it'll be coming up on 35 years, Rob, that for all those years, they did ministry together together that they use their time, talent, and treasure to point as many people as possible to Jesus. What's heaven like? I'll tell you, with every fiber of my being, Susan Johnson's having a very good day today. What will it be for you? Guessing game? Stowing up earthly treasures? Or to see what's really at stake? To use all that we are in our singleness and in our marriages to put on display what Jesus has done for us, to not be ashamed of the cross, and that somehow, some way, by virtue of us meeting together and lifting up Jesus, that somehow others, through our small little church, for the short time we have to be this small little church, maybe someone else will be in eternity with us. I'll pray. Loving Father, we thank you. Little did the Sadducees know when they came to poke Jesus this day with the Leverite vow that they would be giving Providence Church a tremendous gift. The voice of Jesus speaking authoritatively on the life to come, that there is a resurrection of the dead. It's eternal that we are invited in. And Lord, to see that in our earthly institutions of all kinds, that they are but temporary, that in all the ways that we're fulfilled and satisfied here, it will be all the more so in heaven when we're united with Christ and to one another. Lord, I pray for the singles in our congregation that they wouldn't feel left out or that something's wrong, but actually the opposite. We'd say, well, they're, they're doing ministry in a, in a different way, and that's the state that we're all going to be in. May we admire and uphold them and love them as a dear brother or sister. Lord, for those of us who are married, to not fall into the significant uh, cultural stream where say, well, we're just floating by. This is for my happiness. I think I'm done, but rather to say, no, this is the companion that God has given me so that how we relate to one another might be your love for us on display. And as we do this and encourage one another uh, towards your word and against the cultural voices, that again, Jesus might be magnified. In his name we pray, amen. And we we'll stand to sing.